everyone! Welcome to this episode of Grim Tales from the Garden State, the show where we follow the dark stories and twisted threads that have been woven in the great state of New Jersey. I'm your host, Mrs. B, and we're throwing it back to the 1920s and 30s in today's story. We'll be talking about Mary Frances Crichton, a hot-tempered housewife who had a penchant for permanently removing the people who bothered her from her life. And there's. Although Mrs. Crichton is not a certified serial killer, she was definitely suspected of killing multiple people. But before we get started today, here's today's terrifying tidbit. Arsenic was a popular killing agent in the 19th and early 20th centuries, but it was a nasty way to die. The victims would experience convulsions, vomiting, delirium, and sometimes even shingles. But arsenic wasn't necessarily the most effective or easily concealable method of murder. Arsenic is notoriously easy to detect during autopsies, even if there isn't a lot of it in a victim's system. People also struggle to appropriately dose out arsenic because people have varying levels of tolerance to the poison because it already naturally exists in our bodies. To ensure that the intended victim will die, killers tend to use an exorbitant amount to make sure that the job gets done, which makes it even more detectable in the autopsies. But if the killer uses too much arsenic all at once, obviously the victim would realize it was there and the murder would be thwarted, so they usually give them a bunch of small doses over time to kill them. Due to these factors, intentional arsenic poisonings typically take on a similar pattern. A person suddenly dies for no obvious reason, an autopsy is performed, they find the arsenic, and then someone close to the victim, like a friend or a family member, is arrested. The beginning of our story takes place in Rahway, which is located in Union County, and in the 1920s and 30s, it was largely a manufacturing town before those industries left for other parts of the country after World War II. The crimes in the story span from about 1920 to 1935, which is quite a significant chunk of time. Rahway's population in 1920 was 11,000, and in 1930 it was 16,000, compared to the nearly 30,000 residents who call it home today. The Great Depression happened during this time period, with New Jersey's per capita income dropping from $839 in 1929 to $433 in 1933. Entire municipalities were declaring bankruptcy. Over 100 Jersey banks had to close between 1928 and 1933, so this was a very financially desperate time, and trying to maintain a sense of normalcy during it could not have been easy. And let's just say no one in this story succeeded in that effort. Mary Frances Crichton was born Mary Frances Avery on July 29, 1899 in Rahway, Union County. She typically went by Frances or Franny, so that's what we'll be calling her for today's story. She had a younger brother named Raymond, and both of her parents died when she was a teenager, so she had little to no guidance in her life from a very young age. Frances wasn't very popular in school and wasn't particularly successful in academics. She wasn't athletic or involved in any activity or hobby, so she just kept to herself. Growing up, she experienced little to no personal development and growth, both from her lack of parents and lack of involvement with her school and peers. Frances moved to Newark when she was 15 and continued her schooling there. While in Newark in 1917 at age 18, she met her future husband, John Crichton. He was a sailor about to ship off to Europe to fight in World War I. When he returned home a year later, he and Frances got married quickly. They then moved in with John's parents, Anna and Walter Crichton. As Frances entered her adulthood, she was said to be well-spoken and well-composed. She enjoyed cooking, knitting, entertaining, and was described as being compulsively neat. But she had a dark side. Frances and Anna constantly butted heads and both desperately wanted the household to go their way. Obviously, Anna had the upper hand in these arguments because it was her house. But Frances was a hothead and did a good job of turning her in-laws against her. 
A couple years go by and Francis's brother Raymond moves in with them, which quickly caused the house to become way too crowded. Tempers flared even more as additional voices and opinions were being added to the household. Frances's crimes seemed to begin in 1920 in her early 20s. She began spreading this rumor around town that Anna intended to commit suicide. I'm not sure how this was acceptable gossip in any way, shape, or form, but this is what she was telling people. Just a few weeks after the rumor started, Anna suspiciously fell very ill. She was experiencing fever, diarrhea, and vomiting. She died December 1st, 1920. Walter blamed Francis, but he couldn't explain why. He just had this gut feeling that she was behind his wife's death somehow. They were constantly sparring with each other, and why would she be telling people around town that Anna was planning on killing herself if not to cover her tracks? In the meantime, Francis was just totally unbothered, and instead of grieving her mother-in-law's death, she was having fun playing bridge with her neighbors. During these parties, she would tell her friends that Walter was also getting sick, maybe even with the same sickness that took Anna. I'm hoping her friends found this incredibly strange and concerning. First, she said that Anna was going to commit suicide, but now she died from, what, a communicable disease that potentially spread to Walter? Well, Walter began experiencing abdominal pains and vomiting, and he too was dead a few days later. Francis's husband, John, was heartbroken, suddenly becoming an orphan. His parents suddenly died in quick succession with no real explanation. He never pointed a finger at Francis because he loved and trusted her. He said, I know that Franny is guiltless of killing my mother. If my mother died from unnatural causes, I know in my innermost heart that my wife is innocent of responsibility for her death. Poor guy. A few years later in 1923, Francis's 19-year-old brother Raymond began experiencing abdominal pain as well as hallucinations. He went to a Newark hospital for treatment and testing. He got better while he was there and he was sent home. Francis explained it away by saying it was just food poisoning from a bad salad. Interesting how she always knows the exact reason for everyone's ailments. Raymond died on April 20th, 1923, a few days after returning home. Of course, always with the responses, Francis said her brother was a pervert and better off dead. I don't know if there was any merit to these assertions, but with no real context, that's, that's a pretty rough assessment of your dead teenage brother. An autopsy was performed to the chagrin of Ray's family, but to the delight of his friends. It was discovered that he died from arsenic poisoning. Police proceed to investigate the deaths of Raymond Avery as well as Anna and Walter Crichton. It was odd that these three son deaths occurred in one household. 60% of the house was gone in a couple of years. The bodies were exhumed. Arsenic was found in Anna and Ray's bodies, but not Walter's. Francis and John Crichton were arrested and charged for the murder of Raymond. The police only charged the couple with his death because they believed that they had the most substantial evidence for him. The prosecution asserted that Mary was a beneficiary of Raymond's life insurance policy, which was worth $1,000, and his trust fund, which was worth $1,800. They figured she clearly had something to gain from his untimely death. Now, this amount is around $50,000 today, so still not really an amount of money worth killing someone over. Not that there is any set amount for that, but that doesn't mean that people wouldn't kill for that amount. Listen to my episode on Tara Carter for a Another example of that. A neighbor testified that Raymond would often complain about this disgusting chocolate pudding that Francis kept forcing him to eat. The police also found out that he had taken out his life insurance policy and made Francis the beneficiary because she had pressured him to. Now, all this evidence is pretty damning, right? The defense retorted with, 
that's just your opinion, and basically just said, these two don't look like criminals, and Francis was crying obnoxiously loud during the trial, and they won. After their trial in Newark in 1923, Francis and John Crichton were acquitted in under an hour because there were no witnesses that directly tied them to the scene of the crime. A few years later, Francis is on trial again for the murder of Anna Crichton. Ever the dramatic, she enters the courthouse donning an all-black outfit. The family's physician, Dr. Thomas Boyle, said that Anna suddenly became ill after drinking a cup of hot chocolate that Francis had given her. Her vocal cords were paralyzed so she couldn't speak. She had this intense stomach pain and she died despite the doctor rendering medical treatment. On the other hand, Dr. Alexander O'Gettler, a renowned toxicologist, said that there were only trace amounts of arsenic in Anna's system. Therefore, arsenic poisoning was not the cause of her death. He couldn't really pinpoint why she died, but he was fairly certain that it wasn't caused by arsenic. The prosecution also couldn't prove that Francis had procured the arsenic or that she was the one who administered it to Anna, so she was found not guilty again. Because of all the legal drama happening in Jersey, the Crichtons decided a move would give them a much-needed change of pace. It's their early 30s now, and by this point they had two teenage children, Ruth and John Jr. They bounced between a couple of towns before landing in Baldwin, Long Island. The Crichtons met a couple, 37-year-old Everett and 34-year-old Ada Applegate. They lived next door with Ada's parents. Everett worked as an investigator with the Unemployment Bureau, but he was severely underpaid, which is kind of ironic. He was pretty popular around town, while his wife Ada was not very well liked by the neighbors. She stayed in bed most of the day, and her large size was seen as a moral failing by society. Ada accused Everett of being too friendly with other women, which we will come to learn was true. Their arguments would usually be structured as Ada and her parents versus Everett. The couple apparently fought and screamed at each other all of the time, but the neighbors claimed that it was Ada who was typically the instigator. They hated even the mere sight of her. Lots of drama over here in Baldwin, Long Island. Because of the strenuous economic conditions of the Great Depression, in November of 1934, John Crichton offered the Applegates along with their 12-year-old daughter Agnes to move in with them. The house, which was just a little bungalow, was really only meant for four people, so now with seven, it was incredibly cramped. Agnes, John Jr., and the now 14-year-old Ruth just had to sleep anywhere that they could make comfortable, which was often a cold, dirty attic. The home overall was chaotic, with friends and Legion members always coming and going, parties being thrown every other night. There was no regular routine for anyone, and no assigned chores or mealtimes. There was little to no structure in these people's lives. Everett was noticeably miserable in his marriage. Ada would screech commands at him from her bed and humiliate him in front of guests. He liked Frances's maternal and ideal housewife image. She was clean, neat, and a pleasant entertainer. I guess he hadn't yet seen her raging manipulative side, but also maybe he was looking at her with rose-colored glasses. Everett began inching closer and closer, consistently flirting with Frances and encouraging her to be with him. The two sleep together for the first time in January of 1935, and Everett tells Frances that he loves her. She claims she tried to fight against his advances, but I don't think we know Frances to be a woman of strong morals. John, as usual, was in the dark about this six-month-long affair. But Frances wasn't the only Crichton that Everett had his eyes on. He was giving an increasing amount of attention to the teenage daughter of the family, Ruth. He would drive her to school, take her to the store, and bring her to hang out with her friends. He was at her beck and call and was committed to becoming closer to her. When Francis brought up her discomfort with his growing interest in Ruth, he would just laugh it off and say he only wanted to be with her. Then came June 1935. With nowhere specific to sleep, 
Ruth began sleeping in the Applegate's bed. In a disgusting twist of events, Everett began a sexual relationship with Ruth. We all know this is statutory rape and infidelity wrapped in one. Another vomit-inducing detail, his wife was in the bed when they had sex for the first time and she watched. There was an extremely disturbing exchange between Everett and, and Ada where he basically admitted that he was raping Ruth. Even more disturbing, Ruth referred to Everett as Uncle Ev. Just debauchery all around. Sources differ on whether Frances knew about the relationship from the beginning. She stated after the fact, quote, I told him that if the father, you know, that being John Crichton, found out he would kill him. I asked him if he didn't think it was bad enough that he was carrying on without doing a thing like that to a child. I told him that if that was the way he felt, I was never deeply in love with him. Later on, she stated, it was always he who was the aggressor. He could consider himself absolutely finished as far as I was concerned. He needn't bother coming near me again. But Frances went back and forth on whether she approved of this relationship. During her interrogation, she claimed that she allowed this relationship to continue because Everett knew the truth about the murders back in New Jersey. At others, she said she was completely appalled by it. Some sources even said she supported it and wanted Ruth and Everett to marry. Well, Everett allegedly wanted to marry Ruth, so a blessing from her mother would be much appreciated by him. He straight up told police that he was very fond of Ruth and that he was only doing what was natural to his desires. Neighbors and people around town would see him driving her around and caught them being physically affectionate with each other. They were disgusted and confused because they knew who they were and couldn't understand what the F was going on. They wondered if the other Crichtons or Ada knew about this. So I just want to make it clear that this wasn't a case of, oh, it was different back then. Because everyone who knew of the situation or even suspected that something was going on between Everett and Ruth was thoroughly revolted. Everett said that he felt very loved and desired by Ruth. He was obviously grooming and abusing her terribly, manipulating her into believing that she loved him and that this was a consensual relationship, not a horrible abuse of power. Reminder that he was 37 or 38 at this point, and she was only 14. Frances allegedly found out about Everett and Ruth from people around town. She, of course, was seriously bothered by her boyfriend raping her daughter. But for one, she made absolutely no effort to intervene and stop it. And two, she wasn't mainly bothered because he was abusing her child, but rather her boyfriend, who was already cheating on his wife, was cheating on her with her daughter, and she viewed Ruth as being promiscuous and shaming the family. She also didn't like being the talk of the town or people gossiping about her, which is pretty funny considering she established herself as the town gossip back in Rahway. It became clear to Frances that Everett was actually the promiscuous one around town and pretty much slept with anyone who would have him. Literally, anyone. And that comes to light that it was none other than Ada Applegate herself who started spreading the Everett-Ruth affair around town. Frances decided that something had to be done. She had welcomed this family into her home and they were defiling her children and then spreading rumors about the affair. She told the police, I guess you could say I hated her. She had Everett drive her to the store to purchase a product called Rough on Rats, which was rat poison made from arsenic. Her disposition darkened and her mood shifted. A plot was forming. Ruth then came to her mother thinking that she might be pregnant. Absolutely atrocious, right? If this news got out, the Crichtons, and especially Frances's, reputation in the town would be ruined. Everett and Ruth's affair was humiliating and would definitely ostracize the Crichtons from the rest of the community, ruining their frequent parties. 
something had to be done about that no-good busybody Ada Applegate. Frances gave Ada her first small dose of rat poison in her coffee on Friday the 13th in September of 1935. Two days later, the second dose came, but much more this time. After not getting the desired results of incessant vomiting and, well, death, Frances began upping the doses of arsenic. She was really trying to make this woman permanently log out of life and quickly. Ada did start feeling sick and after a couple of doses, she started vomiting. She couldn't even leave her bed, but from what we know of Ada, she typically didn't anyway, so maybe this wasn't one of the bigger issues. She was taken to the hospital on September 25th, but then she was sent home after being examined because the doctor couldn't find anything wrong with her. Later that day, the Crichtons and the Applegates are having dinner. Frances took this as an opportunity to poison Ada a little bit more, giving her that final kick into the grave. Ada was visibly on a quick and steep decline, and Frances was basically frothing at the mouth as she got closer and closer to Ada finally flatlining. Ada was seeing wild hallucinations as Everett was comforting her in her last hours. He cradled her in his arms after she woke up vomiting and fell out of bed. If we're trusting Frances's version of events, it was apparently Everett who gave Ada the poisoned milk that officially took her from this earthly realm, so who knows how genuine his care of her was. At 8.30 a.m. on September 26th, Ada fell into a coma and died. Her cause of death was determined to be a coronary occlusion. Because people around Frances kept mysteriously and suddenly dying, some police officers were becoming suspicious. A couple days later on the 28th, Joseph O'Connor, a Nassau County police officer, gave some newspaper clippings from a 1923 New Jersey newspaper to the chief of detectives, Harold King. These articles detailed two huge murder trials in Newark where a woman was accused of murdering her younger brother and her mother-in-law with arsenic. Interestingly, this woman had been acquitted of both crimes, and as we know, that woman was Frances Crichton. This new information prompted Harold King to interview the Applegates' family doctor. The doctor told Harold that Frances made it a point to inquire about what Ada could eat in her state, and asked if it was okay if she served broths and eggnog. At the time, he disfigured that Frances was the one preparing the meals for Ada and that she was probably just concerned with what was appropriate for her to eat. Detectives went to the local drugstore to see if anyone had recently bought any arsenic. Then, the autopsy revealed Ada had a high concentration of arsenic in her system. The elements were beginning to line up for the Nassau County Police. Inspector Harold King brings Frances in for an interview. Although at first glance she seemed to be a normal mother and housewife, when he looked into her eyes, he saw a cold, mesmerizing darkness. He could tell just from looking at her that she was crafty, manipulative, and had something to hide. The police proceeded to interrogate Everett, Francis, and John Crichton for over two days straight. When Francis had to go home and take care of her household, the two detectives came with her and stood over her and continued to ask questions while she cooked and cleaned. I know this is over the top and unreasonable, but the mental visual I have of two dudes badgering a woman with an intense line of questioning about a series of murders while she's trying to poach an egg in her kitchen is just something else. From getting no sleep for over 48 hours, Frances crumbled into a weakened state and began to tell her story. She told them how she only slept with Everett so that he wouldn't expose her murders back in Newark. She was worried about Ruth potentially being pregnant because then the father could never be revealed and her daughter would have to live a life of shame and secrecy. As we stated before, Everett wanted to marry Ruth, which he allegedly said he could do if he could get rid of that fat tub of a wife. If I thought I could get away with it, I'd do it in a minute. Then, Frances admitted that she poisoned Ada's food, but added that Everett assisted her in the murder. 
Everett denied these accusations, saying that he was a caring, attentive husband who came to Ada's side when she was in need. He said that she passed because of poor medical care and inattentive doctors. Of course, John, ever the lost to confuse one of the household, said that he thought the families generally got along. He had no idea all this drama was unfolding. His worries only began to form when Ada got sick because he knew what had happened the other times people close to the Crichtons got sick and died. He told investigators, she was my wife and naturally I would believe her, but I'll tell you right now, if she did this thing with Mrs. Applegate, I'm not going to stand by her. Why should I put myself in the shadow of the chair for a woman like that? Detectives then inquired about his mother's death back in 1923 and asked whether he thought it was murder. John responded, I didn't believe my mother was poisoned, but I know my brother-in-law was poisoned. The detective pressed further and asked if the poison was called rough on rats by any chance. John shrugged and replied, might have been. Not sure why the detective would think that John would have picked up on a small detail like that when he had no clue any of the extremely obvious chaos was going on in his own crowded home. When the autopsy was completed on October 9th, 1935, Francis Crichton and Everett Applegate were arrested. As you can imagine, the press exploded. It was like moths to a flame once journalists got a hold of this scandalous case. They tore Francis apart calling her an inept mother who couldn't keep up with her own household and facilitated the upsetting relationship between Everett and Ruth. A daily news story wrote of Frances, her eyes rolled wildly and if possible, her skin became an even more unearthly pallor. They came after Everett too, calling him nasty, fat, and with a face oddly colored purple. All the New York newspapers were referring to Frances as a modern Borgia. This is in reference to Lucrezia Borgia, who was a noblewoman from the House of Borgia back in 16th century Florence, Italy, who was rumored to be this man-eater, femme fatale type of woman who threw lavish parties, but also allegedly poisoned and murdered guests. Well, a story from back in 1930 about Frances poisoning her neighbor and three of the neighbor's nieces resurfaces for detectives. She allegedly served the women some hot chocolate and on the way back home, all three of the nieces became viciously sick and one almost died. No one knew what the F happened to them. Then a little while later, the same neighbor's house was lit on fire. This was all sparked by an accusation that Frances stole some gloves that people saw her stealing. Before the trial was set to begin in January, Francis's confession went through many different forms. The first version roped Everett into the plot. The second one denied he had any involvement in the purchase of the arsenic or its intended use. And then in the third one, she said he was the mastermind behind the whole plan of murdering Ada so that he could marry Ruth. Whether he orchestrated his wife's murder or not, everyone immediately hated Everett because he was a child molester. The papers made sure to highlight that aspect of the case the most. Frances was also receiving intimidating letters while being held in jail, calling her an immoral woman, a degenerate, a lousy prostitute. One note read, you are no damn good. You're the worst kind of people. And the sooner the electric chair gets you, the better society will profit. You sure are low, low as can be. People even came at her husband for being so oblivious to the vortex of debauchery that was swirling around him, saying he was a horrible father and a coward. People were just tearing these people up. There's no, no sympathy, just like all their hatred was towards these people. The trial for Mary Frances Crichton and Everett Applegate began on January 12th, 1936. Alexander O'Gettler, the toxicologist for Frances' trials back in New Jersey, testified at this trial. He found that Ada had over three times the minimum lethal amount of arsenic in her body. John Crichton testified that he had no idea his daughter and wife were having sex with Everett. He was never told that Ada died from arsenic and he believed his wife was innocent. All right, I don't even know why John was called to the stand. 
A psychiatrist named Dr. Richard H. Hoffman declared Mary legally sane at the time of the murder, so the defense had no chance of using an insanity defense. On day three of the trial, Everett was called to the stand for his own defense. This is almost always a risky move for the defense. His attorney, Charles Weeks, was hoping maybe actually seeing him would soften the jury's opinions of him that were largely already formed by the scathing articles in the press. People typically already don't like the defendant, especially if the press has already vilified them. Pretty much anything they say is going to be seen through this hypercritical lens. Unfortunately, Everett did not help himself at all with his time on the stand. He flashed through way too many emotions, going through bouts of unbridled rage, arrogance, resistance, deceit, but also meekness and remorse. He just looked insane. Weeks thought that just putting his relationship with Ruth out in the open would help clear the air about all the speculation. He foolishly thought that if the jury got caught up enough with all the rape charges that they would just forget about the murder charges. But this obviously backfired and he only hated Everett even more when more details came out with his sexual abuse of a minor. Everett said he had nothing to do with his wife's murder, never had sex with Francis, but smirked when saying he had slept with Ruth multiple times. He even had a naked picture of Ruth. His attorney made him thoroughly describe his sexual activity with the female Crichtons, making the jury's disgust for him boil over. Apparently, when he was escorted back to his cell, police were struggling to hold back an enraged crowd that had gathered that was screaming obscenities at Everett. Some people actually pushed past the police and got in a few punches on Everett. On January 22nd, Frances actually took the stand herself to proclaim her innocence. According to her, in this version of her story, she had nothing to do with Ada's death. She circled back around to blaming Everett. She accused him of putting an unknown white powder into Ada's eggnog, and that's what killed her. She alleged that this had happened more than once. The prosecutor, District Attorney Elvin Edwards, then goodness, pointed out the inconsistencies between her previous testimonies and this one. Frances had apparently originally said that the motives for the murder were an insurance payout from Ada and Everett's interest in Ruth. Edwards asked Frances if she gave an arsenic-laced glass of milk to Ada, and Frances admitted to it. She said, yes, I did. Applegate told me. The prosecutor responded, Knowing this, you took it to her to drink. She said, yes. The prosecutor comes back with, you stood by and watched this woman, who was your best friend, die. Francis says yes. Everett admitted to his inappropriate sexual relationship with a child, but denied going to the drugstore with Francis to purchase the rat poison. The lack of morals between these two is astonishing, to say the least. The jury was convinced of Francis and Everett's guilt. At almost 1 o'clock in the morning on January 25th, 1936, they found Francis and Everett guilty of first-degree murder, which warranted a mandatory death sentence. Francis was sobbing while Everett had no reaction. At the sentencing, Everett addressed the court and said, I knew nothing and had nothing to do with the administration of arsenic poisoning. And in addition to that, I have never at any time had misconduct of any character with Mrs. Crichton. I think he's not realizing that no one really cared that he cheated with Francis. They were more focused on the actual crimes that he committed. Less than an hour later, they were headed to Sing Sing Prison. July 16th, 1936 was the big day for Frances and Everett. Frances fell very ill as the days ticked by. She kept collapsing, her legs were seemingly paralyzed, and she lost a lot of weight because she refused to eat. Appeal after appeal failed. There was no chance of survival for Frances or Everett. Five doctors examined her condition, and the day before the execution was due to occur, 
they reported that Frances was suffering from hysteria, or in other words, she had such a high degree of mental anguish from her inevitable scheduled death that she was losing her mind. The head doctor stated, we find no evidence of organic disease of the central nervous system or the body as a whole. Girlie was good to go to the electric chair. On July 15th, Frances converted to Catholicism and was baptized by the prison chaplain, Father McCaffrey. She figured that she would be able to accept death easier if she aligned herself with the belief system. When reporters asked if she had any last words, she tearfully replied, I have done many wrong things, but I know God will forgive me. I was a good wife and mother. Whatever I did, I did for him and the children. I hope they will have a better life than I did. I think she had a much too late come to Jesus moment. Now is not the time to proclaim what a wonderful mother and partner you were when you actively participated in your family being torn apart in multiple ways. On the evening of July 16, 1936, the two felons' families were able to say goodbye to them. Everett's father and stepmother said goodbye to him, and John hugged and kissed Frances before never seeing her again. He broke down into heaving sobs and threatened reporters with violence if they dared ask him any questions. In the end, John never knew for sure if it was her who killed his mom. I mean, we pretty much know, but I can't imagine that's something that many people would have the strength to fully confront. Ruth and Agnes were chilling in the waiting room eating burgers while all this was going on. They were seemingly unfazed by their parents' impending doom. At 11pm, Mary Frances Crichton, now 38, was donning a pink nightgown and a black satin kimono. I don't know why she was so dripped out, but okay, maybe I'm picturing the outfit to be fancier than it actually was. She was in a coma due to an injection of morphine, so she was propped up in a wheelchair and wheeled into the execution chamber at Sing Sing. The back of her head had been shaved so the electrodes could be properly attached. Because she was unconscious, she had no sounds or words for the executioner, Robert G. Elliott, who had previously executed two other women. And at this point in history, in New York history, only a few women had been given the chair. Frances was lifted from the wheelchair to the electric chair, her body limp and missing any glimpse of fight. A set of rosary beads adorned her hands as the electricity ripped through her body at 11.04 p.m. Frances was now dead, and Everett was next. His last words were, quote, Before God, gentlemen, I'm absolutely innocent of this crime, and I hope the good God will have mercy on the soul of Martin W. Littleton, end quote. Littleton was the district attorney involved in the prosecution of Everett and Frances. The executioner actually felt sympathy and compassion towards Everett and Francis. I'm not sure if he believed in their innocence for some reason or if he always felt a twinge of sadness before every execution. Before he pulled the lever on Mary, he and the guards positioned themselves so that the reporters couldn't take photos of her because he thought it inappropriate. She was unconscious, barely clothed, and in an exceedingly vulnerable state. I think Francis not being aware of when she was executed was the best outcome for her. She was withering away as the inescapable day drew closer and closer, and I believe she would have thrashed and resisted had she been conscious. And that's the end of this train wreck of a case. Something I found very upsetting when researching this case was the way that the press talked about Ruth. They basically said that because of the way she dressed and interacted with older men, it wasn't at all surprising that Everett was attracted to her, that she had it coming. I understand it was the 1930s, but it still didn't sit right with me. Every adult around failed this child. And Frances definitely had something going on mentally. Why was she always fighting with everyone? Why did everyone have to die? I still don't fully understand why Ada was killed. Yeah, she seemed like a miserable person and spread you know, the rumors, but the real villain was Everett. He was the one actually committing the crime. All this was just completely beyond any semblance of normalcy or sanity. 
I hope Ruth, Agnes, and John Jr. were able to lead somewhat regular lives after this, and I hope John Crichton started sharpening his observation skills because they were frighteningly dull. That's all for me today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast. And if you don't mind, follow me on Instagram at GrimTalesGS, and I will see you all next week. Goodbye.